0: Welcome to Losing a Child, Always Andy's Mom. On this podcast, we journey through the devastating experience of the death of a child. Grief is seldom discussed openly in our culture, and the death of a child makes people feel even more uncomfortable. We approach the topic openly and honestly, speaking to people who have lost loved ones and experts who help care for them. Whether you are a parent experiencing loss or someone who wants to support another going through this tragedy, this podcast strives to offer hope and help.
1: Welcome to episode 186 of Losing a Child, Always Andy's Mom. I'm Marcy Larson, Andy's mom. Today I have the pleasure of speaking with Elizabeth, Aaron's mom. So Elizabeth comes to us as a recommendation from a listener, and this listener actually wasn't even a former guest. It's just someone who felt like she wasn't ready to tell her story, but she thought Elizabeth would be a great one to share. And she's right. Elizabeth has a lot of knowledge to share with all of us in her journey since losing her daughter, Erin. Again, if you know someone who would be a great guest for the podcast, please email me, email them, have them email me. Again, that email is Marcy at andysmom.com. And know that coming up really soon is that Ask Me Anything episode. I've gotten a few questions, but not too many. So if you've still got a question for me or a question to Eric, for Eric, you make sure to email those to us. So you can email me at Marcy at or email eric at eric at andysmom.com. For now, just sit back and enjoy listening to Elizabeth, Aaron's mom. <music> so much, Elizabeth, for agreeing to come on the Always Andy's Mom podcast today. It's good to be with you here today on holiday in Morro Bay. (laughs) I know. So Elizabeth has an interesting uh, story. So she comes to us from California, but she is on vacation in California because she really lives in Canada. And you're actually South African and British. So we've got all sorts of areas covered today, geography-wise. That's right. And you're supposed to be in sunny, beautiful California,
2: and it is not sunny and beautiful. I can see behind you. It is It is not sunny and beautiful, but we're very happy as we've had a gruel- grueling drive to get here yeah? and a day behind a jigsaw puzzle and and movies is quite quite in order.
1: Yes. Well, that's true. That's true. Hopefully, you'll get some sunshine tomorrow then. Yeah. yeah. Well, why don't you start out by just telling us about your daughter, Erin?
2: So our daughter, Erin, was born in the hospital car park in Cambridge, Cambridge, United Kingdom's Rosie Hospital, because we didn't get to the hospital in time. Oh, my. But we had a very dramatic entry into into life in the car park. My husband had gone to get somebody to help me. And I, I thought, I wondered if I'm going to be able to, how do you catch a child and stop it from Banging its head on the ta- head on the tarmac, and uh, I have an eldest son who's now eighteen, who at the time was two, so a two-year gap, and I was expecting another boy. Yeah, I didn't find out the gender, but I had an identical pregnancy, and Aaron was born with a small complication with a kidney renal pelvic dilatation and Mm -hmm. the incidence in boys is 80 percent so the signs seemed to be indicating that she was going to be a he but she just surprised us and so instead of an ethan we had an erin and she came steaming into the cambridge early morning january the 17th cold air and was an absolute delight from day one and i was absolutely thrilled to have a girl in the millionaire family of a boy first and then a girl um but I would I we were just happy with whatever we had so long as it's health healthy and happy so did you catch her did you have
1: to catch her yourself no no my okay. husband
2: managed to actually find pluck something there was nobody they couldn't find anybody in the hospital because the receptionist was on on lunch duty oh my and so I interrupted an antenatal class to get a a nurse to come and help me and literally I was uh, at the pushing stage (laughs) and she intercepted it at the at the perfect time so she arrived on the 17th of January and then we we were exploring going to live in Canada at the time and in fact I was completing my doctorate and just three months later we went to Canada for interviews. um, Because of work permits, we didn't get the jobs and we came back and I was quite relieved because I I was in my nesting stage, didn't want to uproot and go. And in fact, just three months after returning, we were offered the jobs. They'd managed to sort the work permits out. So I was not in a place to leave at the time. We needed to get Erin's medical challenge sorted out. So I mm-hmm. stayed for a year on my own in the UK with my naughty old and two-year-old. <laughs> Actually, it was a pretty hefty year because I completed my doctoral studies, was selling houses and cars, and uh, was on my own waiting to join my husband a year later in Vancouver, in Canada. Wow. Yeah, so so Erin came into the world with, I guess, with a lot of change, facing a lot of change. We literally mm-hmm. upped and started again in Vancouver. She was even within her early years. We were, we were, we we big travelers, so we uh-huh. traveled a lot even in her first year and subsequently as soon as she could start to walk, we started our passion again with little children on the backs and that that's mountain walking.
1: Okay. Wow. So she was a little adventurer from a tiny, tiny yeah. age. Yeah.
2: Yeah. So what was Erin like then growing up? She was an absolute delight. From both my children have been absolutely delightful children. Very easy. Mm-hmm. Slept through pretty quickly, was very single-minded. So from the beginning, she knew what she wanted. She knew how to get it and made sure she did. Around bunches, happy, just a uh, just a lovely kid. And she mm-hmm. and her eldest son, uh, elder brother Cameron, were always very close. And I think because we did travel quite a lot, mm-hmm. they were always big mates on okay airplanes or in cars or wherever, we ha- ever we were headed to. So she went to school then there in Vancouver. So it, it, we moved to Vancouver when she was just a year old, right? She'd been born just before my husband left. And mm-hmm. then I'm, I joined him a year later. So she started, she just, she got to a halfway through her second grade. Okay. Mm-hmm. Not even halfway through her second grade, actually, before we lost her. So she started school in our local community school. Mm -hmm. And then she actually changed schools after her first year and went to a French immersion school. And so was there. Oh,
1: yeah, but my kids went to a Spanish immersion school. So that was our kind of fun schools to do, aren't they? Mm -hmm. So do you want to go on and talk then about what happened to Erin?
2: So um, I've I mentioned that we were a very big outdoor family. We yes. we spent a lot of time in the outdoors. She'd walked. We would travelled extensively. We'd walked in South Africa, in the USA, Mexico, Iceland, Europe, China, Hong Kong. Um, uh, wherever we were, we'd uh, even if it was just day walks um, or little trails. But we'd started doing. Uh, overnight walking as well so backpacking into the backcountry as well and mm-hmm. the kids initially started with uh just little bags with maybe their favorite stuffies in or in the case of my son about 20 stuffies <laughs> yeah and then my husband and I would carry the the bulk of the cooking gear and the tent and the sleeping bags and we'd started off with just a couple of over two or three overnights and we'd we'd get back into the backcountry of the beautiful Vancouver mountains that we have surrounding us. And so we were part of a local community in Lions Bay, which is a walking community. And, and three days before Christmas and 2014 we went for a walk um, with the lions bay walkers our family had just been in hong kong a week before and it, it'd be I'd, I'd noted that there was a lot of rain mm-hmm. and that the rivers were very swollen and so when we returned we did actually go out for the monday walk my mum was out from the uk from wales and my brother had joined us for Christmas from Hong Kong, his first Christmas actually off duty for, for many years. And so on that fateful day, we set out. My husband was at home with my mom, my brother and Cameron and Erin and I headed out with a party of about 20 people. Erin was the youngest child on that walk. And entered into a river valley, and I called her to join her brother to have a photograph, Mm -hmm. and in moving, she stepped on a piece of ground which dislodged part of the bank, and as a result, the the boulders above the bank fell on top of her. And we, they, you know, it's interesting, at the time, she she was clearly very injured, her Hep, yeah. Hip was displaced. There was no blood, and we could see scratches on her. But even at that time, I had this voice in my head. I thought to myself, "It's going to be very sad that she spends hospital in, uh, over Christmas." And I thought, right. "I wonder if Santa comes. I wonder if Santa comes to your hospitals, right, at Christmas time." And then almost immediately, there was a voice in my head that said, "I'm moving over for another child." So these two juxtaposing things, one, my own internal voice and one, an external voice in my head. So... Anyway, she, my brother, as a is a pilot, and spent uh, probably about forty five minutes giving you mouth to mouth resuscitation. We did have a nurse on the team as well, oh, sorry, on the walk as well, and so they did mouth to mouth resuscitation for about forty five minutes until the paramedics arrived, and we were we were right in the mountains, so the helicopters came. They, in fact, the paramedics came up the mountain with a team. But the helicopter was also trying to get her. At that stage, I, I just felt I wasn't needed. And I wanted to get myself, my dog and my son off the mountain to join, just to be with my husband, because he was at home with my mom. And so he drove out to meet me and I, I ran down the mountain. In fact, I don't even know where the dog was. And I think somebody else looked after my son. I just, I just bolted down and we waited on the local primary school field for the helicopter not knowing right. what what the outcome would be and my husband's always an optimist and I'm an optimist as well but you know it's also interesting at the same time I also thought to myself having this optimistic thought inside of me that you know my daughter was going to be in hospital for Santa over the christmas period i, I also had this sense that westerners don't deal with death well at all it's always hidden under a bushel And there was a sense that I need to tell my story. All these subtle things that were going subliminally while Mm -hmm. I was still optimistically hoping for the best outcome. So my husband joined me. We were with the ambulance. The ambulance was waiting for Erin to come off the mountain so they could take her to the hospital. But eventually when the helicopter arrived, they came to tell us that she hadn't made it. Now, you can imagine three days before Christmas with my mom and my brother having come for a family holiday. That's a pretty tough time in order to negotiate the loss of a child. And we obviously we'd had plans that week. We were uh, we were going to trade her skis up. We were going to go skiing up in Whistler a little bit later in the week. She had a play date organized. And then, of course, all just a load of Christmas festivities. Yeah. And so having to renegotiate that in the midst of Christmas with everybody else being really festivities yeah. was extremely difficult. And I remember being in, the, in a shop because my son was a believer, yeah. Santa. And so just asking myself the question, does Santa come for a dead child? And I decided he did. So I was buying presents to stuff a stocking for a child that wasn't there. So just negotiating all of that. And then uh, we made the decision right right up front is that we were going to go to everything. So we went to every single Christmas activity that we planned to. And it was extremely difficult, not only for us, but also for others. We live in a small community and the whole community just rallied together. It was just unbelievable how the community rallied together, both in where the children went to school and also where we were at the time. So Mm -hmm. I think it was also a very difficult loss because it was very public. It was three days before Christmas. There was no news at the time. So, of course, this became not only a local story, but a provincial and national story. So I had CBC on our doorstep the day after we lost her as a focus. And my husband and I decided again, um, you know, in terms of risk management communication that we would manage the messaging. And so we were very purposeful about what we were messaging and how we were messaging. And certainly later on, when it came to the celebration of life, which was in early January, we we actually engaged with the media in order to make sure that our story was angled in the in the way that we wanted it. So, and it was, I guess, a story of community support and engagement because the support we had was just was absolutely unbelievable, and I I, I do think that you know being a very public loss. Mm -hmm. brought its own complications Mm -hmm. because it wasn't something that we could tuck away quietly and just get on with there was a there was a there was quite a focus on emerging story yeah Uh, we had that locally too for sure
1: yeah it didn't go national but I think I think we were a story on the news for you know five six days in a row it was like every day and yeah because it just, you know, here he was, this beautiful little chorister with this beautiful voice that they would put him singing on TV and they put my picture of a pediatrician and it just mm-hmm. made a good news story,
0: mm-hmm. you know, and mm-hmm.
1: that's hard. Uh, we, we had somebody, I, I have a friend who worked for one of the news stations and she sent, got a message through to us pretty quickly to find a spokesperson, find somebody to talk to the media for you. So we had a good friend of mine, Michelle, mm-hmm. talk to the media for us because I just wasn't up for that. I mean, we were certainly recorded, you know, but I wasn't up for that. It's amazing that you were. <laughs> yeah.
2: So, yeah, so that's her story. Um, I think one of the things, grief and the loss of a child, especially when it's sudden, mm-hmm. you have to recalibrate everything so quickly. And I remember just being on the stairs when I returned from being on the mountain thinking, this is the rest of my life, you know, I'm going to have to remake this readjustment for the rest of my life, I was on one set of tracks, and now I'm on a completely different, another set of tracks. And that, that, was, that was an arresting moment. I had another moment a week later and everything for me was very crystal clear. They often say that during grief and loss, you don't have clear memories. I, I have very clear memories of pivotal moments and pivotal thoughts. And one of the th- pivotal thoughts was everything in life is in your mind. So you can shift how we're going to embrace this tragedy is about a mental engagement of how you're going to choose to do it in your head and so that that was for me personally and right from the very beginning you have to in, in negotiating grief, you have to understand who you are as an individual, because everybody's journey is so individual and personal. Mm-hmm. And really understanding who you are as a person will shape your understanding of the grief process itself. And I, I'm an extrovert, and I need people in my life. And so that very much shaped how my grief journey unfolded, you know, at we we had a very large celebration of life of about a 1000 people, we very well connected in the education communities that we we're, were in. And at, at the celebration of life, we said, I, you know, we realized that the, this attention and focus is going to be very concerted for the first month, mm-hmm. but thereafter people will go on with their own lives and we will be left to just journey on our own. And we actually put an invitation out to people. We said, we'd like you to choose a date sometime in the next year and just have us to dinner or have us around so that we are continued to support, be supported over the course of the year. And people really took that to heart. And it was, especially for me, was enormously helpful because the one thing I I need to do was just talk and just proclaim mm-hmm. her life from that point onwards is just to keep her alive. in, And also to get other people's perspectives of what they remembered of her, because Everybody around us has got different memories, and in bringing those memories, actually, you get like it's like a a diamond. The facet of the diamonds are seen from different angles, Mm -hmm. and your child just ignites with beauty and radiance from different angles. And so that was that was something that was really important for us as a family because people did take our invitation very much to heart. We were. Certainly initially we were inundated and we had to just calm things down because my husband needed more space. And I think that's another thing is that couples grieve very differently. And that can be a huge stress in a relationship that if you have a quieter person, somebody who doesn't want to talk versus somebody who does want to talk that can create enormous stresses um, we also recognized that yeah, up to 70% of marriages don't make don't make it through the loss of a child. And so we were very purposeful in writing down what the potential challenges might be and just mit- what the mitigations for that were. And how one's grieves was was one of them. For instance, I couldn't look at any photographs. I I just I just could not look at it, them at all whereas my husband immersed himself in, in the looking of photographs in order to evoke their memories. So that yeah, that's just, just one example. And then the, the, the other thing is that, so we had to ask people to just space it out a little bit right. and manage it. Yeah. The other thing that I realized is that people don't know what to say. They really, really don't know what to say. And often skirted around Erin and our loss and what had happened. And I, I was very purposeful about bringing up and you know saying it's okay um, to speak yeah. about it, actually encouraging people to to speak up about it, because. Certainly in the first days or the first months and in the first year, it's all, there's no life beyond your loss. It is all consuming, absolutely, absolutely all consuming. And I love the the poem, Stop All the Clocks, Cut Off the Telephone by W.H. Auden, which indicates, just illustrates just how the whole of life is pivoted in on your grief and there's nothing else outside of it and so even even my son who was with us I spent more time with the loss the presence of absence is that her, Aaron's absence was more pervasive than my son who was present that was again something that's very difficult to negotiate in the first year is yeah. just that all-consuming presence of absence of the of the lost one how old was Cameron again now he's now 18 so at the time he was at the time just 10 days off his no two two weeks off his 10th birthday okay I was thinking he was probably around 10 yeah yeah so just all-consuming loss so we had three days afterwards we had Christmas and then on the 17th of uh, on the 9th of January we had uh, Cameron's ninth And just six days later, Erin's would have been her eighth birthday. And so we sent out the invitations, the birthday invitations for her birthday party already. And so the question was, what do we do about the birthday party? Do we have the birthday party or do we cancel it? So we decided to go ahead and have it. It just felt honoring. And also, again, it was about inviting people into our lives. And so... The birthday guests came and the parents came and everybody was in a different room, sobbing their hearts out. Everybody wrote messages on on balloons, which we then released out to Erin. And I remember a lot of the balloons didn't make it up into the air and they got caught in the trees. And so the messages were still hanging there for many years afterwards. So it felt the right thing to do. My husband always makes birthday cakes, the birthday cake. That was the thing that he did. And the children always chose what they wanted. Mm -hmm. And so you can imagine how difficult it was to be making a birthday cake for a child that wasn't there to blow out the candles. Yeah, yeah, very, very hard. And and then the things like the empty lunchboxes, because we were on Christmas break and then the empty lunchbox. Going back to school and you know, the classmates, it was in the middle of a school year. And so negotiating for the teacher and the parents, what do you do with the desk of the child that's no longer there? And so for a while, just because the kids were pretty traumatized, they moved the desk next to the teacher's desk and then Eventually they had to move it out because I think for seven, eight year olds, out of sight is out of mind and the presence of the desk was too challenging, I think, for, for everybody.
1: So many things that we have to kind of navigate through. And I appreciated what you said about people not knowing what to say, because it is so true that people have no idea really what to say. And and then oftentimes I feel that people then, since they don't know what to say, they feel like maybe it's better if I don't say anything and I just don't go up to her. I don't talk to her at all because I have no idea what to say. So it's very interesting approach that you took to really, really invite them to still come. Mm.
2: Mm.
1: So how were all those dinners that you had then?
2: They were very cathartic. They they were very mm-hmm. cathartic. Um I took the process of loss at a very intellectual levels I read a lot I read a lot around loss and Mm -hmm. some pretty batty stuff actually (laughs) I processed a lot at so many different levels you know where is Erin now like tangibly not just oh she's in heaven with Jesus but but where is she now and what do we say to our kids you know what do we say to our remaining children about where she is Mm-hmm. The platitudes are well for for were not not the way forward.
1: And I don't think platitudes help anyone actually, no matter what their yeah. faith background, no matter what it is. Because you know, I've got a strong Christian faith background, but it did not make me feel the slightest bit better to say, "Well, Andy's in heaven and he's not in any pain or whatever." Like, yeah, but I want him here. Now I feel like, oh, I must be a bad Christian too, because all these Christians are saying these things to me to make me feel better. And now I just feel like I'm not doing anything right. I just want my boy and I don't want all of that. So I actually don't think the platitudes are that helpful to anyone.
2: (laughs) Actually, I found them deeply damaging. Oh, yes, very much so. They're hurt. They feel hurtful. They they do. Some of the worst comments were given by Christians, actually. You know, there's, there's a plan. Part of the plan. There's, yeah. there's a plan. In this There's no plan in the loss of a child. What you do is you bring the good out of it as a choice yes. in your own life. You know, that that right. you bring out the good. As I said earlier, it's all in your head. You make a conscious decision as you've done to make the loss of your child something that's potentially supportive or not both my husband and I right from the very beginning we we were very conscious that we were make our family whole again somehow or other mm-hmm. and whether that was through adoption or in having another child and that I have to say that really did shape our our journey in the way in the, and we've been very different place so I, I now have a boy girl twins hmm seven almost seven year olds so that that's going to shape our grief journey because I felt pregnant pretty soon afterwards within Mm -hmm. six months of having lost Erin but and we weren't sure we also started an adoption process really quickly afterwards as well because I wasn't sure there's 11 years between my eldest son and, and my twins so I was we weren't quite sure whether wanted to start again with young children and, you know, put it up out to the universe to make the decision. I have to say, you know, also I was heartbroken to lose my daughter because I hadn't expected a daughter and it was little things like going swimming and my husband would peel off with my son and I would peel off with my daughter and I'd lost my mate.
1: Yeah.
2: And so I guess when I found out I was having pr- twins, I was delighted because it doubled my chances of having a girl. Yeah, And I didn't find out the gender of the twins before I gave birth, but my husband and son did. So they knew the gender all the way along. <laughs> and Madeline was delivered first. And so that just the joy of having a girl again. Mm-hmm. You know, the fact that... Uh, there they feels like re well they literally and figuratively is rebirth and that's mm-hmm. certainly helped our our journey enormously you never would get to a point I don't I'd always rather just have kept with the status quo but yes yes of course mm-hmm. I, I guess we both said right from the beginning this is not going to crush us and so it was a mm-hmm. conscious decision in the first year's it is breath by breath. It's not day by day, it's breath by breath getting through from the one minute to the one minute to the next minute.
1: Absolutely right. Mm. You always have to take it really one moment mm. at a time at those early times. I I felt really really overwhelmed when I tried to look too far ahead. Mm. Mm. You know, I went to a support group very, very soon after Andy was, Andy died about three weeks later. I thought it was two, but recently I realized it was actually three weeks, but, and I remember hearing one of the leaders, the facilitators, say, I didn't feel normal, like my normal self until about nine years later. Mm -hmm. And that was so Mm -hmm. terrifying to me Mm -hmm. because the idea of even looking nine years ahead was awful. Mm-hmm. And then thinking, am I going to feel like this for nine years? Mm-hmm. I can't imagine feeling like this for nine years. And of course, that's not what she meant. She didn't feel like that for nine years, but it was pretty scary to hear mm-hmm. it right away.
2: You know, I-, I had almost a reverse experience where somebody said to me in the early days, I think within the first two months and somebody who'd lost their child and who'd gone on to adopt Mm -hmm. said to me you will feel joy again Mm -hmm. and uh, honestly I held on to that 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 was my beacon throughout my first year and we're eight going into our ninth year the separation from Aaron. and that that was that was my that was my guiding light is that I will feel joy again Uh, but the first year is so difficult because you're always thinking back this time last year I was
1: Yes, yes,
2: yes. Once you get after the first year, that hump of you, it's its now your life. Your life without your child is that that's just how it is. And in looking back the previous year, it's the loss that you're remembering. So I, I did find a very distinct threshold from the first year to the second year. But the pain's there all the time. I remember standing... <laughs> next to craft uh, going past craft dinners and dissolving because uh, we we don't do any processed food in our house but Erin had gone to a childminder and had craft dinners and been completely hooked into it and so craft dinners sneaked into our home and just been absolutely devastated that craft dinners are no longer part of the fabric of our of our home anymore and our peanut butter sat jar sat on our shelf for years because we couldn't throw it out but nobody else in the house eat, ate peanut butter yeah and i think that that's one of the things that as the years go on is this paradox of holding on and letting go is holding on to the memories but also needing to let go in order to move on into a different life and that's Incredibly difficult because you feel dishonoring of the one that you've lost in letting go, and and the memories, the memories do fade. I think also like Erin would have been. We've now had her for longer. We've not had her for as long longer than we had her. So I can't even recreate her life. I can't imagine what she would be or who she would be by nature of the passage of time. You you have to let go. So yeah.
1: Yeah, it's hard to want to, though. Mm-hmm. It sure is. Mm-hmm. It's funny you bringing up the food. It brought brought back. We I bought, shortly before Andy died, went to Costco, and I bought this big thing of high-protein pancake mix because he was so little. He was always so tiny, and he wanted to grow. So desperately, he wanted to grow. And so he saw these this pancake mix at Costco that had higher protein so that we could get him more protein so he could get bigger, and that... Mm-hmm stupid box sat in the cupboard for a long time and it was so big and bulky and nobody else said and nobody wanted it <laughs> nobody wanted yeah. it but it, yet it sat there until it was long yeah. expired yeah.
2: before i finally could let it go marcy do you still live in the house that you oh i'm in andy's room yeah so we moved home uh, we'd been planning to move home anyway but we mo- moved home just a year and a bit afterwards. And in fact, just after the twins were born. And mm-hmm. that was also really difficult. And, that, you know, talking again about grief, different grief journeys for husband and wife is my husband really wanted to be surrounded with everything to do with Aaron. Mm mm-hmm. Whereas I just found it too hard. And so for me, moving home was quite a relief. And also with two young new children, it was almost like recreating a new life with them. But the emotional turmoil that came with that was just absolutely massive, just almost insurmountable.
1: Right. Well, we had bought property to build a new home, actually, (sighs) and we just cleared The spot they were supposed to start digging the basement about two weeks after Andy died. That was supposed to start in September. So we cleared it. We put in a driveway, and there it sits. Oh, you haven't completed. There it sits. Four and a half years. It's just sitting. I've only even been to the property once since then. I know part of the driveway has washed away.
2: Is that because you are wanting to surround yourself in all that? And I just, yeah.
1: Yeah, I just can't leave him. Yeah. Yeah. Just
2: can't. Yeah.
1: And we haven't gotten rid of it because, you know, this house is big. And our last one will be graduating from high school next year. And it's just too big. Yeah. So we should get something smaller. But I just have a hard time. Yeah. 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 It's just hard. Well... Why don't you talk about what you've been doing? Because you've been doing some pretty cool things, I think. Because um, you sent me some information. Because you do some speaking now and some different things, don't you?
2: I, I don't speak widely. You Going back to my voice on the mountain, which, uh, which said a little bit like you say, is there's not much around ch- children, the loss of a child. Yes. I seem to draw people... You know, when people lose children, you form a very unfortunate club. Yes, of, of so of, of people who've who've lost who've lost children, and you know, very sadly in in my world, it's all been young girls around about six, seven. That's been helpful just to understand. And everybody's journey is different. You yes, you mentioned Cora's mum.
1: Yep. Yeah, so I mentioned that before we started recording, but to all of you, and Cora's mom is probably listening, but I, you, Elizabeth came to me today because a listener, Cora's mom, who has not been on the show, but she said, I think that Elizabeth Aaron's mom would be a great guest. So yes, so Cora's mom's one. Mm-hmm.
2: Dina and Ryan lost their daughter in very similar circumstances, just a really tragic accident viewed by their son as well and so touch base with other people whose children have been ill and have lost like that Uh, another family another child as well lost through an accident also watched by the parents it's a little bit like when you have a child in the first place as you draw your support network around you because there's an opportunity to think, talk about your feelings and your emotions and the practical things, you know, the the practical things, like yes. what do you do with the stuff? What do you do with your child's stuff and your clothes, the the child's clothes, you know, do, do they sit in the door for forever or do you give them away or, you know, just how people are negotiating some of the, the nuts and bolts of things as well. And Alice, little things like, Um, she was still in the car seat like taking that car seat out of the car was unbelievably difficult and then we'd been in Yellowstone National Park and she bought a pocket knife and the pocket knife was still in the in the little pocket the door pocket and then you know the removal of that was symbolic it was about her stuff and her side of the car and the I don't know the the orange peels that had been stuffed down the seat, and and suddenly it it felt like a cleaning out and of the car and her space in our life and our family, and because you can't we couldn't feel that we could should drive around with her car seat in the car for the next x number of years yeah. and so it's the you know just connecting with others around the practicalities of how you deal with 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 the loss of a child um and how you remember as well we had unbelievable support from our community we were fed for 6 months three times a week by three different communities and then, because I had my children pretty soon after that, it was you know like nine months later, and the meal started off all over again. So, so the communities really looked to remembering her in all sorts of different ways. So, our one community had a bench. I'd been the head of a school, and. They also had a friendship bench that they created. Um, we had the, the Brownies, Go-Guide Brownies had cre- planted a, a section of the forest for her. We had uh, a playground, the memory in her, the money in her memory was went towards a play structure in her school's playground. We we had we have an, a, a trail named after her in Lions Bay, uh, which takes her to the Enchanted Forest, Erin's Enchanted Forest. And if, if you Google, it actually says Erin's Enchanted Forest on Google Maps now. Oh wow! The local community came and planted daffodils because my mom is Welsh and it's the national flower of Wales, and so. Every spring along the main road of our of our community, you see Erin's Erin's daffodils pop up. She was in a soccer club, and so there's a award for resilience every year in in her memory in the in the local soccer club. The Brownies created a little badge, which was to do a walk, and she was very into monkey bars. So you had the the badge was doing a walk, and then going across on the monkey bars. So they create a special little Erin Moore badge for the for, for the Brownies. So another one of us school, schools, in Cameron School, there was a theatre seat in, in memory of her. And every year we have a walk for her to Erin's Enchanted Forest. And we have about 100, one to 200 people turn up for that in our local community. And all the people who've over the years supported us still goes, went through covid a socially distance wall. So wow. It does feel as if her memory is still alive. Our local beach are going to have they're rebuilding the beach, children's beach park, and it's going to be named in in her honor. So it feels as if, yeah, wow. it feels as if she's been embraced and her her memory still continues to live. And I think that's also one of the things, you know, I really went a lot into myself. I think intellectually, I think I mentioned this earlier, wrestling with things is, you know, where is she now? What do we say? What is life? What is death? What is life in the continuum of the history of humankind? Because mothers throughout history have lost lost children through wars and in modern society, we, we've got lots of medicine. Most mothers lost children just 100 years ago. And so, just locating the loss of our child in the context of hist- history as well, I found really helpful. It's just knowing that where we are in our time and place is that as mothers, we're better off. That's not to wanting to gild something that's awfully black, but it did allow me perspective. I did go on on the Canadian statistics, and in fact, in her age group, there were more children lost through accidents. That was the highest incidence of loss of a child was through accidents than through illness or suicide or anything like that.
1: Mm-hmm
2: just thinking back a hundred years ago where children would be lost through illness. So gratitude is also something that that's just counting great gratitudes. Mm -hmm. You know, when you're in the thick of it, it's not something for the early years. It absolutely isn't. And there is great irony is I used to do gratitudes with a friend just every week, send 10 gratitudes of things that you're grateful for in your life. Really? And when I, when I lost Erin, I couldn't continue. It just, my life was too dark. Yeah.
1: Right. I'm sure that would be, I mean. Yeah. Those are things you can do for yourself sometimes, but it would be hard to share that with someone, especially someone who hadn't lost a child. I think that would be hard to do that. Have a gratitude partner. That's not in that same circumstance. I think if you, you could probably have done it with one of, uh, with another bereaved mom, maybe, but you know,
2: my heart wasn't, it wasn't in a grateful space. I I was riling too much against the universe for having, having delivered. I think the other thing is, you know, again, with this intellectual wrestling was around the what ifs. Yes. One of the things we shut down right at the beginning was to shut down the what ifs because it doesn't change the outcome. And, uh, and you know, what if I hadn't taken my phone on the mountain that day and asked her to move into the position where she was? It's right down to that. Oh, yeah. But what if I hadn't gone on the walk? What if the weather had been raining and we didn't go on the walk because it was too wet to walk? Because it was a beautiful sunny day. What if we hadn't come to Canada and we'd opted to stay in the UK? And uh, where do you start the what ifs? Is it on the morning or is it five years ago or was it when you begin life and and we came to the decision really early on to shut those down because it just becomes intellectual torture yeah and that was very I have to say that was really helpful is as soon as I started my mind started to process the what ifs I just said right this we're just not going there because the outcome is the same it doesn't make any, you know, it doesn't make a difference. So
1: yeah, that's, that's a hard one to do. Cause I think we all do that a little bit mm-hmm. for sure. I'm glad you're able to kind of shut those ideas down when they come. That's good advice to yeah. give to people to try to do that.
2: As I say, right, right at the beginning in, in my head, it, I came to the understanding that everything is in your head It is about, it is about managing your mind and it's very difficult because your mind is not in a good place anyway. One of the things I realized is that absolutely, absolutely everything has to be recalibrated. And I think just recognizing that right at the beginning is your relationships have to be recalibrated. You, for us, it was really surprising the people who stood by us and the people who did not. Yeah, I mean, right down to yeah. family members yeah. who gave absolutely, absolutely no support. And complete strangers who emailed almost every day, almost every day. Um, the people that are not—they, you know—they they came in for the season of loss, and then they just quietly exited again.
1: Yeah, I have those.
2: Before. Yeah, and and so the, the recalibration of everything, the relationships, your connections, your view of the world. Our worldview has shifted dramatically as a result of of the loss of our child and just balancing what is important you for me experiences have always been important you know we've traveled a lot we've we've hiked a lot getting outside is is really important but things are really not the things that drive us now because what you held on to in the loss of a child is not it's not the things it's the memories it's 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 those ice creams you've had the the playground the walks the the interactions the parties the gatherings the the meals around your table that's what fires your memories of of the last of the lost one and then your your beliefs you just how how the world is ordered suddenly you you have to go back to the core of your values and how your world is constructed whether you've got a faith based perspective or whether you haven't or whether as a result of your loss actually your faith is no longer it no longer it no longer holds together in the same way or it shifts
1: oh yeah it shifts sometimes stronger though too so yeah sometimes
2: sometimes not Your routines, Um, uh, uh, for instance, laundry. I, I, I didn't have any pink in my laundry anymore, and just pink or purple, and just negotiating that—that was a really hard one for me, because uh, going past going past clothes in a department store, which because she was a girl and she loved clothes, and suddenly that whole arena is not there anymore, just. Thinking ahead as well, we're all planners in thinking ahead about what our children are going to be and who they are. And suddenly there's this, this cavernous gap where that person's emerging life would have filled and it's not there anymore. And in language, right down to, I had two children. I now had one child. So I I couldn't, and it was a very conscious thing. I wasn't saying kids get in the car anymore because I only had one child. So instead of saying kids, it'd be Cameron get in the car. And that language shift was very painful. Very, very painful.
1: I think about setting the table. Setting the table is hard, right? That was a hard one.
2: And I, I remember going to uh, out out for a meal, and uh, and somebody uh, uh, the the waiter saying to me, "Oh, are oh, you just three then?" And inside, I besides the expletives inside me, it was no, can't you see that my lost child is sitting here as a ghost? Or you know, just the going from a foursome to a threesome. That you know the the imbalance of one for each parent yeah and so negotiate yeah for us
1: it was five to four and being able to sit like in a regular booth at a regular table I mean we always had to get a bigger table we always had to wait longer and to have the whole family sit in a regular regular table was I mean it was heartbreaking
2: yeah
1: I hated that yeah, yeah. We didn't need a big table anymore.
2: And then the silence. You. Nobody talks about the silence when you go from a uh, from a family of of two to a family of one. Is we always woke up to chatter. You know the kids would be together and they shared a room and suddenly there was just silence. And so negotiating the silence in our home was was hard. And I think maybe that's one of the reasons that. The social getting out of the home was really important in our grief journey because it was facing the silence at home and, and also just negotiating via one being a one-child family is that there's a lot on parents when you're a one-child family because the child hasn't got somebody else to play with. And so that became a very different and interesting dynamic in our home as well. And, and very hard holidays were really difficult. I remember we would booked a, a holiday to Mexico and being at the airport and the, because the ticket was still in the system and the person who was checking and saying, Oh, where's Aaron? And I just absolutely flooded. You know, was in floods of tears just yeah. because Erin wasn't there because she lost her life in an accident on a on a mountain. And I think one of the other things yeah. that was really difficult for me was the two things that fire my soul that speak to my soul are my ch- were my children and being in mountains. You're know, just the absolute. Yeah awe of mountains and the natural environment and having to come to terms with my one love my one passion mountains had killed my child and so because being out out of doors and in nature is so important to nourishing my soul and who I am just having to negotiate what I do with that that feeling and I would say, internal anger about the mountains that claim my child. Mm -hmm. Just the sense of order of the world, whether you've got faith or not faith, is...
1: Well, it just doesn't feel safe anymore.
2: Yeah, yeah. You know, know and maybe that's another thing that I purposefully have embraced because mountains are so much part of the fabric of who I am, and, and I met my husband in the Drakensberg Mountains in South Africa. We sort of solidified our relationship. And it's just been part of our the theme of our married life is I was very conscious, again, about the mind of saying, I'm going to be in mountains again. I'm not going to let this accident keep me away from my passion so when my twins were just five weeks old I went with a friend and actually her birthday entourage and we walked up the Star chief as far as we could carry five week old twins and she carried one and I carried one as far because it's quite steep and the chains and things and that was my first outing back into the mountains knowing that we would, we would engage in this journey again into mountains because I didn't want the fear of of the accident to color my enjoyment and love of being in nature. And so that was a very conscious decision. And with our, our younger um, Madeleine Sebastian, we've had them walk with us from the age of two. And so we've got back into the mountains again, just because we didn't want that fear to grip our lives in a negative way. Mm-hmm.
1: I had wondered about that. So I'm glad you brought that up. I didn't want to ask, but
2: yeah, yeah,
1: yeah. We
0: still walk. Mm-hmm. Yeah.
1: Yeah. You're still walking. Yeah. You're still hiking. Mm hmm. Well, thank you so much for joining us today. Are there any other kind of parting words that you would like to say to the audience?
2: People do and say daft things, but they also do astonishingly beautiful things. And I I think it's important to keep a balance and a perspective. The other thing is you have to do the grief work. And, you know, because I've been back in the world of children's book again, I love the book, uh, We're Going on a Bear Hunt. Where the bears, where the children go seeking a bear and they say, uh oh, a river, a deep, cold river. We can't go over it. We can't go under it. Oh no, we've got to go through it. And that for me was, remains a metaphor for grief work is there's no way around. You can't go under it, over it. You can't skirt it. You have to go through it. And I think for me personally, and again, it comes back to who you are, just talking it through really helps really helped face the grief and what grief is and it's different absolutely different different for everybody but for me talking it out and also for me writing the words just poured out of me I I just they helped me process Mm -hmm. on an intellectual level they helped me process uh, very much on an emotional um, on a level And for me, I personally, um, and again, it's different, I needed to keep busy. So I was back at work five days after we lost Aaron and I kept working all, all the way throughout because it filled the space uh, and the emptiness. And then in talking it through with friends, it, it enabled me to do the processing Um, The other thing is, I will say meals for us were a lifesaver. I just didn't have the energy to cook. And it was actually lovely seeing different people's meals arriving at the door. Um, I lost a lot of weight, but just having meals was a real gift. But hold back on the lasagna because it seemed like every second meal was a lasagna. And then, you know, for those, because largely people are around you supporting is, for the supporters is listen, 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 don't fob it off. I remember being super angry when we sat around, you know, as you described your own booth with a friend. And I said, we both sat with the menus and we said, I wonder what Aaron would have had. Because you, you know your children, what what they generally choose yeah. and she's moved the con the friend moved the conversation away and I actually and that became a strategy I actually said to her I want you to know that what you did was really hurtful there because you did not I, yeah. this is part of our grieving process is acknowledging our child and you're skirting it is not helping us and face our grief and so I think that was one of the things is, and you, you have to decide if you've got the courage is actually calling people out because otherwise they don't le- people don't learn you, how to negotiate the, yeah. the grief. And so I think just being very gentle with guiding people about how to support the grieving, those who grieve and being very clear about what you want as a couple and as individuals and just listen and accommodate. Uh, that that's another thing. I have relatives that gave us absolutely no slack at all. Just uh, like there was, yeah. I, I can't even begin to describe how hurtful their actions were. And certainly in the first year, if if people seem to if the grievers seem to be doing batty things, that's okay. It's absolutely okay. You've got to come to them with a real bucket full of grace. Is just saying it's yeah. okay. It's okay. It yeah. you know if you're short tempered or whatever, it's it, it's okay. I think the most important thing is just recognizing that this is loss is part of life. It is part of life, and even the loss of a child. And Lucy Kalanathi's TED Talk, I found immensely helpful. What makes life worth living in the face of death? Words which I hold on to all the time is engaging in the full range of experience, living and dying, love and loss is what we get to do. Being human doesn't happen despite suffering, it happens within it. When we approach suffering together, when we choose not to hide from it, our lives don't diminish, they expand. And our job isn't to fight fate, but to help each other through it. Not as soldiers, but as shepherds. And I think that's uh, more than anything. That's what I hold on to is loss is part of life. And just embracing it as, as part of life with all its rawness helps us to become better human beings and just gaining. And you got, you won't feel that in the first year or maybe in the first four years. But in time, that sense of this is about the human condition is, is losing and supporting others through it and that's the piece that I can hold on to with hope, I think. And I think the final thing is just there is hope and there is joy. You just have to dig deep and just be super patient, super patient. So, yeah.
1: Well, thank you so much, Elizabeth. I've really enjoyed talking to you and learned so much from you. you. <laughs>
0: for listening. If you found this helpful and would like to support the podcast, please leave a five-star rating and comment. To help financially, you can text Andy's Mom to the number 53555 or visit the donate page on andysmom.com. Your donations are secure and tax-deductible and we are now able to accept Venmo, PayPal, and Apple Pay. Always Andy's Mom is a registered 501c3 organization and can receive donations through smile.amazon.com drive in Financial, and Benevity, amongst others. Marcy loves hearing from listeners. Please feel free to reach out to her via email at marcy at Also, be sure to sign up for the email list to receive weekly updates as well as pictures of all of Marcy's guests and their children. Together, let's work to inspire hope one day at a time.